Several years ago, I met a young man who came to our church. Uh, he had become a Christian when he was a teenage teenager after several years of rebelling against his upbringing. He'd come to the University of Illinois, and he told me he had vowed in his heart not to be distracted from the discipline of his study by dating relationships. But during the course of about his sophomore year in college, um, he met a young, sincere, good-looking Christian gal. And he described the meeting as somewhat serendipitous, accidental. I mean, you know how those things happen. A friend of a friend introduces a friend. And in the next few months, I watched this young man, contrary to his assertive affirmations, I watched him ardently pursue this newly discovered treasure. Everywhere she went, he followed. Uh, Phone calls were made. Long notes were exchanged. He pursued her with no relent. He broke every promise that he'd made to me uh, about no relationships. But I could tell that the feelings were not so mutual. Uh, Even from a distance, I, I could watch and see that. But then to everyone's surprise, he broke with conventional wisdom, the advice of of me and other people, and he went for broke, and he asked her to marry him. Now, she didn't immediately answer, uh, and he confessed to me having been terribly crushed by this immediate uh, lack of response. But after mulling his proposal over for a few weeks, to his utter shock and surprise to everyone, she said, yes. And they were married over the next Christmas break. I was privileged to attend that wedding, Uh, And I'm pleased to report to you this morning that this coming January, Tina and I will celebrate our 36th anniversary. (laughs) Love you, babe. (laughs) She is still my treasure, and I'm still pursuing her. (laughs) This morning, we're concluding our sermon of series, uh, series of sermons titled Snapshots of the Kingdom. And in today's message, it's worth it. We're going to hear two stories that call all of us to follow Jesus as our treasure. We're looking at Matthew's gospel where he records a collection of parables that Jesus gave to his audience in order to more fully grasp the nature of God's kingdom. We've seen that in the parables of the farmer scattering seed and the seed growing by itself, that the kingdom has come into the world to be received by some and rejected by others. And so we should be encouraged as a result to continue sowing lots of seed, to experience rejection as normal in the kingdom, but yet at the same time to expect a great harvest someday. In the parables of the weeds and the wheat and the fishing net, we learned that we're not to be surprised that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of our enemy, the devil, actually coexist side by side until the very end of the age, at which time everyone will then face judgment. But in the meantime, we are to stop judging and start loving. And then last week, we discovered in the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast that we should not despise those small beginnings, the little seeds. And we should always be expecting God's kingdom to break into our lives, our world. This morning, we're going to hear Jesus' invitation to follow him with our whole lives. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this morning, we're already rejoicing because we we have new life in our midst. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the tiny, fragile, vulnerable child in Phoebe and, and that she'll grow to be a woman who pursues you with all of her life. And Lord, thank you for all of us here, the heritage that you placed in our background in order to cause us to come to you. And this morning at the start of this brand new week, we just say thank you. Thank you, Father. Please inspire us to worship you more fully. Lord, equip us in our relationships with one another that we'd be enriched there. 
and empower us to be your vessels who reach the world with compassion and care and love and service in your name. Now put power on your word to our lives today is our prayer in your name. Amen. Jesus' parables are very simple stories that employ everyday, ordinary things to teach profound truths. And as we've discovered, their intent is both to reveal and conceal. They reveal by providing insight to those who are spiritually hungry, but they conceal in that they prevent those whose hearts are calloused or hardened to see spiritual truth, to see the light of God's Word. And on this particularly busy day of ministry, Jesus was delivering a series of parables in order to re-educate his audience about the nature of God's kingdom. Because when he announced that it was here, it didn't look anything like what they were expecting. And so Jesus is now re-educating his audience. The stories are recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, the 13th chapter. If you want to open your Bible there or your Bible app, we'll also be reading the text together on the screen. Now, today we're looking at the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And these two parables are teaching the same thing. And it's kind of like Jesus was saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something about the nature of your response to my kingdom, and then I'm going to tell you the same thing again. Any of you uh, younger adults remember hearing that from your parents? Those of us, we remember hearing it from ours. I'm going to tell you this, and then I'm going to tell it to you again. Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, like, like, listen, really get it. And, and the power of these stories is that once you've heard them, because of this combination of verbal imagery and real-life object lessons, they are forever locked in your gray matter, aren't they? You hear the parables once in your life, and you remember them. Jesus is the master storyteller. These are relatively short, so why don't we just read them out loud together? The two parables. We'll, we'll, we'll follow along on the screen. So you ready to go? Let's just read them out loud together. You ready? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it powerful stories. Let's unpack them just a little bit. Now, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Now, when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, it means the same thing as the kingdom of God. Here's why. Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience. A pious Jew would never pronounce out loud the name of God. They don't to this day. But because heaven is where God dwells, they substituted the word heaven for God. So when you read the phrase kingdom of heaven, just think dynamically kingdom of God. Now, the most likely circumstance that Jesus was envisioning here is that of a peasant who was working in the field of a wealthy landowner in that process found a buried treasure. Now, I know it's hard for us 21st century Americans to conceive, but treasure at that time was often buried, as in a field for safekeeping. In this case, it was probably now long forgotten by its owner. You see, you couldn't just go to the local branch of PNC or Busey or Morton Community that was in your neighborhood and open up a savings account. It didn't work that way. If you had treasure, 
Treasure was often stored in the form of coins or gems or perfumes or spices, even fabric. It was then hidden or buried to protect it from being vulnerable to theft by thieves. So upon his discovery in the field, the man quickly then covered the treasure up so that uh, uh, either the landowner or anyone else couldn't find it. And then the peasant invested all of his resources in purchasing that field. Now today, we would simply go down to the bank, the local branch bank, and apply for a loan, borrow the money, uh, secure it with a mortgage, and buy the property. But in those days, you had to liquidate all of your assets, which is what he did. He sold everything he had to buy the field and the treasure hidden in the field. Now in the second story, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a pearl merchant who's on the lookout for the choice pearls. Now, this is a man who knows his pearls. Uh, He isn't going to be caught buying some cheap imitation cultured pearls of inferior variety down at the Kohl's store. He's looking for the pearl. The mother load is what he's looking for. Now, this entrepreneur is probably well-traveled. He's probably gone to the Red Sea, probably the Persian Gulf, maybe even the Indian Ocean, where the merchants of pearls traveled in those days looking for merchandise. No doubt he's wealthy, probably educated, probably a well-respected and influential name in town. When he wrote an an op-ed for the Jerusalem Times, everybody listened. In his search, he discovers the pearl. He finds the pearl. He got the mother load. And then like the man in the first story who discovered the hidden treasure, the pearl merchant sold everything that he had to buy that pearl. Now, this is no small deal. This guy probably had substantial holdings. His estate would be large, would probably be worth a lot of money. And uh, it would have been a big deal to liquidate everything to buy the pearl. Now, in both cases, I suspect that Jesus's followers were probably familiar with this kind of storyline, stories about lost treasure, you know, that were, were that were discovered, probably circulated, especially among the poor. Everybody's waiting for their ship to sail in, right? There's not a one of you who hasn't imagined what you'd do if you won the lottery. You know, we kind of think, what would happen when if I got an inheritance? Or, you know, like if you discovered a a Picasso painting at a yard sale for $5. You've all imagined, you know, the stories about uh, uh, finding something of value, how you would spend the money if you won the lottery or or whatever. Yeah, we we all, every walk of life, we imagine these kinds of things. And, And no doubt the audience had heard stories like this before. And they probably heard the story about a pearl merchant who on a travel to a you know foreign port had discovered a pearl of great value. So the storyline was probably familiar. It was the response of the people that was the twist in the story because the response was radical. Upon finding the buried treasure, the man sold everything he had to buy the field. Upon finding the pearl, the merchant sold his entire estate to get the pearl. Those are radical responses. I think this is, in part, the takeaway. Jesus' call to all of us is very simple and yet very compelling. He says, follow me with everything you've got.
Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the pearl. And once you find the treasure, once you find the pearl, give your whole life to him. No matter how you find him, the call is the same. Fully follow Jesus wherever he leads. Now, there are two very distinctly different attitudes displayed in the two parables. Here's why. In the parable of the hidden treasure, the man isn't looking for anything. In the normal everyday course of doing his job, probably working in the field, minding his own business, daydreaming about what he's going to do that night when he gets home, he stumbles on the treasure. And that's how a lot of us met Jesus. We weren't really looking. We weren't really interested. We were just minding our own business. And then a coworker gave you a book. You know, with some reluctance, you attended the Christmas Eve service at the church of a friend of yours. Uh, your marriage blew up. You lost your job. You were diagnosed with cancer. And then an old friend sent you a message, gave you a phone call, sent you an email. You couldn't sleep one night. You managed to turn on the TV and you were watching some preacher on CBN. You stumbled into the vineyard. You don't have a clue how you got here. You weren't really looking and then God invaded your life and you discovered the treasure. You heard about Jesus and his love for you, that his kingdom has come. You, you, you heard about how coming under the rule of God could touch every pocket of your life, as broken and as needy as you might have been. Uh, you, you heard that you could be delivered from sin and guilt and, and addictions and all the badness that you inherently carry around with you. And that was good news. And you met Jesus and discovered the treasure. You weren't really looking but you discovered the treasure. Now, in the parable of the pearl, the merchant was actually searching. Did you catch that detail? And maybe you're one of those people who, from as long as, as you could remember, from the time you were a child, you've been looking. You've been searching for Jesus, for the God that your parents or your grandparents and extended family talked to you about, that you heard about in, in church. You've been reading your Bible. You've been praying. You, you've been trying to get your questions about life and what's on the other side of life answered. You, you've been going to church. You've been having conversation about spiritual things. You've been hungry. You, you're leaning into things of God. And then Jesus revealed himself to you and you found the pearl. Jesus revealed himself to you. You met Jesus. You found the pearl, the thing that you'd been looking for your whole life. But in both cases, whether you're minding your own business and not really caring, or you're earnestly seeking God, in either case, you found the treasure, you found the pearl. And then Jesus said, follow me with everything you've got. Now, either way is just as legitimate. Some of you have wrestled with that you've stumbled into the kingdom in, in an inauthentic way all along. And Jesus is saying one way is not more legitimate than another. God apprehends those who are, who are on a desperate journey, and God reveals himself to those who aren't looking at all. And everything in between, his call is still the same. Follow me with everything you've got. In both cases, he calls for a radical response. Follow me with your whole life. Why? Because the kingdom of God is, is of inestimable value. It's worth it. Ben, are you saying that 
gosh, we're supposed to now go today and sell everything that we've got to be like the two men in the story, like to do what they did. I mean, is that the literal application? You know, just hold on a minute now. You're just taking this Christianity thing way too seriously. I, I, I certainly don't pretend to have quick and easy answers uh, to these very challenging verses that have cast a large shadow over history in the last 2,000 years. People have been wrestling with what do these two verses mean for a long time. So we're in a, we're in a long line of people who have wrestled with what does Jesus really mean? in these two verses. And I certainly wouldn't say that I know uh, uh, for, for uh, definitive purposes that I know everything it means to value the kingdom so highly that we're willing to sell everything we've got to follow him. But I wonder if numbers of us would confess to a grave suspicion that these verses mean something other than what we might be currently living. Selling everything represents our whole life, doesn't it? Our call is to follow Jesus with our whole lives, to be willing to sell everything to follow him. Our call is not to answer the question, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Or are you a Christian? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Are you in or are you out? Are you a weed or are you a wheat? Our call is not just to be good people, you know, to, to be nice and polite, uh, to, to do good, to go to church often and clean up our language and make sure we floss every week and, and to give a little bit of money to charity. Those are all great things, but our call is to answer the question, are we fully following Jesus with everything we've got? If we are, all those other things that I've just mentioned are going to naturally take care of themselves, aren't they? We don't have to micromanage behaviors. You see, all the, all that stuff that Jesus calls Christians to, it's going to be taken care of with the right attitude and the right motivation from the inside out, not, not outward conforms of behavior that are pressed upon you from the outside in. You know what? A man or a woman in love changes everything, don't they? They do radically different things. Nobody had to tell me what I had to do to pursue her. Nobody said, you really ought to like write her letters because that was back in the day before email. <laughs> Nobody told me that I should like spend money, expensive money back then on long distance phone calls. Nobody had to coach me on that behavior. And you remember those of you that married and fell in love, you, you know the story. Uh, a, a man or a woman in love changes, don't they? When we meet the treasure and the pearl, we change. We do things that are irrational. We spend money on flowers. Why would we do that? Because it's a waste of money. All they do is die. But what it communicates is, I love you enough to waste my money on you. <laughs> we do irrational things. No one has to give a list of behaviors to people in love. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. You fall in love with him and all the other stuff takes care of itself. You don't need a list of behaviors about what's good or what's bad or what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Fall in love with Jesus. Now, we're not talking about getting religion or joining a church or turning over a new leaf or stopping cussing. Now, that's not what we're about. We're talking about meeting Jesus and falling in love. And when you do, it'll change everything. I'm reminded of Jesus's words in another sermon. I like to call it the talk on the hill. You might know it as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, 
Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. So do we value the kingdom of God above all else? Do we follow Jesus every day and make his kingdom our primary concern? That's what he's asking. Now, every one of us has values. Uh, They are the things that govern our life. They give form and shape to our behavior and our decisions. But I don't think that many of us carry around a list of our values in our wallet or our iPhone or our, you know, our purse or on our Facebook page. Um, But the reality is we do what we value. Let let me illustrate. I, I value frugality. And so I squeeze every last drop of toothpaste out of the tube. Why waste good stuff, right? We eat leftovers at our house. Uh, I only buy clothes uh, once a year or twice a year on Kohl's when they're on sale. Thank you, Amy, for the friends and family discount. I value frugality. I, I value delay of gratification. And so I will almost always work before enjoying pleasure. Um, when my kids were young and in school, I taught them that they had to uh, like no computer time, uh, no no friends online, no hanging out, no socializing until they had their homework completed. And then later in life, I had to encourage them that they had to endure momentary difficulty and pressure and stress of, of life before they could indulge in uh, replenishing and uh, beneficial uh, activity. Numbers of us remember pursuing the one we treasured and valued, don't we? We do what we value. Our lives show what we value. If you gave me your calendar, your clock, and your pocketbook, or your your check register, I could tell what you value based on what you do. These two stories stand as a challenge. Does my life reflect that I value Jesus above everything? Now, we all know that every day of our lives, they're filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions, some of great consequence, some of insignificance. But do these decisions regarding our time and our talents and our money and our priorities and our relationships, do these things reflect that we value Jesus as the treasure, as the pearl? That's the challenge of the stories. Now, part of the rub that as a sincere and devoted follower of Christ, part of the rub in the kingdom following Jesus is this. We don't know where Jesus is taking us, and we don't know how we're going to get there. On another occasion, someone once said to Jesus, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go, to which Jesus replied in Luke's gospel, this answer, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, well, Lord, uh, first let me go return home and bury my father. Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. And another said, "Uh, yeah, Lord, I'll I'll follow you. But, you know, first let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus said to him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So what, what, what is Jesus saying here? 
Well, it's not an excuse to be hard-hearted or uncompassionate towards family who have experienced loss. I think what he's driving a point home here is, you don't have a clue where I'm taking you. And so it's a rebuke. Don't follow me uh, like presumptuously or hastily. Do it thoughtfully, because you don't have any idea where I'm taking you. The Son of Man doesn't know where he's going, doesn't even know where he's going to lay his head. But at the same time that it's a gentle rebuke, it is also a powerful promise. It's a promise that we can trust him as our shepherd to lead us where we need to go. And a promise of his provision that he'll provide for us as he leads us. We can trust the shepherd to take care of the sheep. He'll lead us and guide us and provide. We can trust him and it's worth it. Where might Jesus be taking you? Where might following Jesus take you? Well, the Bible is full of stories in the, in the meta narrative of God's kingdom coming about what following God, what following Jesus actually looked like for people over a span of 6,000 years. But maybe for you, it's now to a career path or a life choice that you wouldn't have made on your own. Maybe it's to leave your current job and get another. Maybe it's to go back to school uh, and earn a degree. Maybe it's to um, be a part of a church plant. Maybe it's to give away a certain sum of money at God's direction, to become a foster parent, or to become a marriage mentor. Maybe it's to serve the marginalized or the oppressed or the poor uh, in some manner. Maybe it's to volunteer in your community in some way. Maybe it's to offer to pray with a coworker who expresses a need in his or her life, to take the risk and say to a neighbor or the person in the apartment next to you, can I pray for you right now? Maybe it's to actually invite that coworker or that classmate to join you at the vineyard. Maybe following Jesus for you means you're going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit-inspired instruction in Ephesians 4 to throw off the old sinful nature and the former way of life, which is corrupt by lust and deception, and instead let the Spirit renew your mind and your thoughts and your attitudes. Maybe that's what following Jesus means for someone here today, right now, to forgive an offense, to cancel a debt, to reconcile a relationship that's breached to serve in our church family in some capacity, to take that step of faith and obedience, or a thousand other things. No prescription, no one-size-fits-all Christ followers for all eternity, but rather hear and obey, hear and obey. That's why I like the word follow, because it implies action, that we're leaning into the Holy Spirit, listening to the shepherd, and then stepping into obedience. Through the power of the indwelling spirit, we listen to his guidance and direction, and then we trust his empowering to actually lead us and equip us to do the things he's asking us to do. But we don't know where he's taking us, and we don't know how we're going to get there. In 2006, when God began to speak to Tane and I about the rearrangement of our life to potentially plant a church, we had no idea where it was. But we said, as humbly as we could, Lord, we're willing to follow you. Our lives are yours. Never imagining that now in 2012, these four or five years later, that we'd be here with a new group of people who are also saying to Jesus, we're willing to follow you. Don't have any idea where this Vineyard Peoria thing's going to go, but here we are. 
Following Jesus in this way is the source of real life. Our call is to passionately pursue him with our whole lives, and God's guarantee is that it's going to be better than you imagine. It is worth it. It's the source of real life. You might be in a, engaged in activities and going to places you never imagined, never saw yourself. But you, it, it's like following uh, Jesus, discovering that treasure, follow, finding the pearl. It's going to be way worth more than you imagine. In Him, we will find our heart's deepest longings finally fulfilled. The American dream? Probably not. Christ's dream? Probably. It's in Him that our deepest longings and our needs are going to be met. In Jesus, following Jesus is worth it. So my prayer is that over these last weeks, as we've looked at the mysteries of the kingdom, that uh, our understanding of God's work in the world and in our lives has been enlarged. My prayer is that by the Holy Spirit, you will now be empowered to respond to God, His calling on your life in ways that allow you to more completely experience the real life that He said He desires for all of us to have, the rich life, the, the, the life of the future, the kingdom life that he said is his desire for all of us to have. And, and thirdly, my desire has been that in our church family, in our lives, in our families, we'd experience the signs and wonders and miracles of the presence of his kingdom breaking in as we find and follow him. One last postscript. My prayer is that in the continuing process of this discovery and change, uh, we'll, we'll be able to equip the church in, in ways that might allow these things to happen. And so a week from tomorrow night, on the 8th of uh, October, your program indicates that we are going to start our very first Vineyard Bible Institute training course called Breakthrough, the Nature of God's Kingdom. You see, the last five weeks have been just kind of a taste of the kingdom, a little bit of stories about the kingdom. And this five-week course that we're going to offer here at the Vineyard, two hours per night over the five weeks, is a course taught by one of the, uh, uh, the Vineyard's most renowned scholars, Derek Morphew. And we're going to unpack the nature of the kingdom. Each, co- each evening will, will involve about an hour DVD and then about an hour of discussion and application. No cost for the class. If you have kids, we will provide child care, but you have to pay for that. Details are either on the city or in the program. And um, we'd love to have you join us. Lord, we're just grateful that uh, you, you didn't like wind us up like a clock and send us out and say, yeah, there you go, live life. But you come in the person of your Holy Spirit to teach and instruct and encourage and lift up and heal and, and change and equip. And we're just grateful, God, that, that you give us a family in which to do it. And Lord, we pray that over these weeks, that as our understanding has been enlarged, that we be empowered by your spirit to take steps of obedience, that we'd respond in ways that our capacity for experiencing real life of your kingdom would continue to grow and that we'd see signs and wonders and miracles among us. Lord, now as we offer our hearts and our hands and our pocketbooks in these offering and in the songs that we sing, we pray that you would receive these for what they are, tokens of our life that say we love you and we want to count for you in your name. Amen.